Blog Talk Radio. At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us, host a show, or be a guest, or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. The following program is brought to you by Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E. Good morning, everybody. This is Mildred Lynn McDonald, and I'm your host for Healing Conversations, live from Sebastopol. And I'd like to welcome my two co-hosts, Hi C. Ludemers from Menlo Park. Hello. And John Carousella from Utah. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. And we have a fun topic, and hopefully it's a topic with some wisdom thrown in there, too. So if you were going to write a letter to your younger self, let's say someone who was about 18 or 20 years old, what would you tell them based on your life experience today? And to help myself and to help John and High C, I've broken it down into five little categories that we thought would be of interest to you. The first one is love. What would you tell your 20-year-old self about love? The second one is about money. The third one is about health. The fourth is about career or your work life. And the fifth is a generic category about life in general. So I'd love to ask Hi C and John, what would you tell your 20-year-old self about love? And we'll do a little round robin. You said these were little categories, Mildred Lynn. These are huge categories. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I I think hmm, I would tell my 20-year-old self regarding love, I would say be patient, both from the perspective of taking my time to decide who I was going to choose to love, and also once having chosen to be patient in that process as well. You know, there's something that I've just recently come closer to is the idea of asking what's beautiful, what's attractive, what's the thing that draws me into something, and then invest myself in cultivating more of that. I guess it's focusing on the positive, right? But focusing in a way that's more active. So I would tell myself, focus on the positive and invest in that. And more empathy, less selfishness. Look at the world through the eyes of your loved ones, as opposed to from your own perspective. That would be my advice. And hi, C, what about you? I would probably say don't look for it so hard and be more open to it simply coming when it's going to and in the way it's going to, rather than feeling as if you are supposed to find it, that you have to find it, that it's part of the story of how we're supposed to be happy, complete, and fulfilled in life, rather than just accepting it's a part of life. 
and not to confuse love with relationships, that love is a much broader thing. And so not looking for it, but just being it is probably more important. And then whatever is right for you will come as a result of it, rather than trying to make something that we think we've been told we're supposed to do or how it's supposed to look. And for myself, I went in a little different direction. When I looked back at my 20-year-old self, and this was life-changing for me when I became older, was to make a commitment to love my higher self, no matter what. And how it played out for me was my higher self would never let me down. When I did that, the other part of the equation was that my love for my higher self would allow me to let go and then let go of all expectations. So if I was talking to my 20-year-old self, I would guide her or suggest to her for her consideration to find a way to make that commitment to love the higher self earlier on because it truly was life-changing for me. Now, what about money? What would you say to your 20-year-old self about money? Well, for me, I think I would say you're going to make plenty, so that's not what you mean to worry about. But respect the effort and the energy that it's going to take, that your time and energy is precious. And so when you make money, don't treat it like it's just free. I had this easy come, easy go attitude about the wealth that I created. But the truth is it wasn't actually easy come. It came with a, with a price. And it was only later in my life that I started to respect the price so I would try to encourage my younger self to realize that my time and energy is really precious. What about you, High C? That money is not a measure of success and amount of money is not equivalent to amount of happiness and money is not what defines abundance and prosperity. Okay. And for myself, what I would tell my 20-year-old as she came along the happy trail was to expand the money equation and start thinking in relation to currency rather than money. And a currency equation, and this is what you touched on, John, the currency equation encompasses so much more than just dollar bills. It's your time, it's your emotions, it's your energy, it's your perspective. And once you start looking at a currency equation that money is one component of with other components to the equation, that also changes your life. Now, what about health? What would you tell your 20-year-old self about health? I would say, young man, start doing yoga every day. <laughs> start now and find a teacher that understands the spirit of yoga so that you can really harvest what's there. I've been blessed. My health's been pretty good the whole way, but I think if I could tell my 20-year-old self one thing, it would be start doing yoga. What about you, High C? That health comes from all levels, body, mind, and spirit, and that the more we nurture, support, and feed the deeper levels of ourselves, the healthier we will be. Mm. Yeah. I like that. And mine would be, always remember that you have a body 
so take care of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I also wanted to throw in some wisdom from Crystal Starr, who's an intuitive in the Mountain View area. I was talking with her, having a healing conversation last month, and she introduced something I never thought about. She was talking about vitamins and minerals are here to help us feed and nourish and heal the body, but nature could be looked at as something that is here to help heal and nourish the spiritual aspect of ourselves. So as with the money equation, I would invite my younger self to expand the definition of body and health and start looking at ways, and I see you touched on this, that mind, body, spirit, emotion, and dream can be supported and not just looking at things as a physical body, although my tendency has always been to forget that I have a physical body. Now, what about career? Well, for me, the advice that I would give is don't fake your passion. Don't pretend to love what you do. Don't pretend at all. And actually find something about what it is that you're doing that you actually love and lean into that and let yourself be guided to more of that. Through my life, it's been, my career has been an exercise in conjuring passion around things that I wasn't really that passionate about. And that takes a toll. Don't fake your passion. And I see. <laughs> I don't want this to sound as if I'm contradicting what John said, because that certainly is not the intention. I had this phrase in my head even before he said it as well. My first thing would be to. Always find a way to love what you're doing, regardless of whether it's what you love to do. Because we can continue to find what we're passionate about and pursue doing a career that we love and being on that path that we really want to be going down career-wise. But sometimes there are jobs along the way, difference between job and career. And instead of having a negative attitude towards that job, if we can love it for being a stepping stone or a necessity and giving us what we need in that moment as we continue to move towards what we want to do career-wise, we can also start to recognize that even if we think it's just a job that we don't want to be doing, it may give us some sort of insight or skill or experience that will ultimately make our career richer. But I would also go back to what I said with money is to also not fall into the trap that career defines who you are and that career success is the ultimate arbiter of whether you've been successful in your life as a person. And for myself, what I'd like to share with my younger version is that even if you're not in the career that makes you fulfilled and happy at the moment, and I love the idea that there's always a gift, as Heise was saying, and whatever you're doing, there's a gift there, to really look for a way to express your passion, even if it's in a small way. And if you don't know how to do that, have faith that you will know how to do that and be open to doing that, even if you spend an hour a week nourishing that passion that you have that you feel that you'd like to develop into a career at some point for me i spent many years in one career and i was very good at it and it was very lucrative it didn't speak to my heart 
I didn't know, I didn't have the wisdom to know that even though that didn't speak to my heart, I could have also been at the same time working on an area that did fulfill my heart in the form of a hobby and then develop that. So so that's what I'd love to share with my younger self. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. Now for life. Hmm. Who would like to share about life? The first message I would give to my 20-year-old self is never stop singing. Never stop singing and take dance classes and be creative to really let my artistic self have a place to be expressed, make my artistic side a priority as part of being authentic. Be your authentic self and don't be things for other people. Be who you are and live your life that way. And I see. Actually, what John just said, I think, is the perfect setup for what I was going to say because my advice was going to just be. Just be in the moment. Just be who you are. Just be with where life is taking you and what's going on at any time rather than worrying about where you're supposed to be going or what you need to be doing or what isn't there or what other people are trying to say you should be doing or what point you should be at just be with who you are and where you are and you'll find that things will naturally fall into place and that there's a magic in the universe where things will magically show up along the path but if we are too busy looking for things we may miss them so if we're just being on the path then we are aware and conscious to be able to see them as they come in the form that they come rather than simply looking for what we think is supposed to be there. And for myself, I have two little pieces of advice. The first is to do the 24-hour program, and the second is to let it go. Now, recently I've had a lot of vegetables and meat and potatoes and everything else on my plate, and I quickly realized that if I tried to dissect all of the data coming my way, I would crumble. So I made a pact with myself that I would follow a 24-hour program. The side effect of that was that it made me very present and in the moment. And then the other gift in that is I decided I really like this. What is this 24-hour program? You you focus on what's just within 24 hours. That's all Uh you can deal with. And if you are doing 24 hours well, then the next 24 hours, and in terms of what I mean well, I mean in integrity, the next 24 hours will take care of themselves. Mm. So I found... It requires discipline, but it's also very economical and efficient in terms of energy and emotional output because you're not projecting, anticipating, trying to find solutions for anything outside of 24 hours. And as as I said earlier, if you do that 24 hours well in integrity, then the next 24 hours will take care of themselves. And when I say take care of themselves, I don't mean that everything is solved. I don't mean that everything is rosy, you do get a sense of being centered and solid and secure in your path. So that's a great gift, and I wish I had known that when I was younger. And the other part, in terms of letting it go, after 24 hours, whatever has built up, whatever energy has built up that you don't need, let it go before the next 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And that's very cleansing. 
And I speak to that from experience, from two months of experience. I know that doesn't sound like much, but it's been a pretty dense time in my life. And I'm so grateful for that source of inspiration coming my way. So I'd like to invite our listeners to go through the exercise that Heisey and John and I have just gone through and reflect on what wisdom, what guidance, what insights you'd like to share with the 20-year-old self in the area of love or money or health, career, life, and maybe you have a few more. I don't know. John or Heisey, do you have any that you would add to the list here? I actually had I had one question for, for all of us, and that is when you thought about what you were going to share with your 20-year-old self, did you think about whether they would actually listen? <laughs> Like, you know, some of the messages that I <laughs> want to give to my 20-year-old self, I have a feeling he probably wouldn't have listened to. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good question. I feel that if I was able to deliver the energy of the message in an age-appropriate context or structure, that I would lean towards my 20-year-old self would listen. But it would have to be in the verbiage that my 20-year-old self would understand. How about you, Kaisi? Well, my thought is, and this kind of goes to also, you know, when I do readings for people, whether my 20-year-old self was consciously listening, subconsciously, he would hear it. And if nothing else, it would plant a seed that may not ripen until later in life, but it would still be there and start to subtly affect and inform that 20-year-old self as they continue to grow and evolve. What about your 20-year-old self, John? Well, I, I was thinking about it as I was scripting these suggestions, and I think, I think I could have managed to get most of them in in the language that he would understand, but he was pretty caught up in his own story back then, so some of them might not have stuck. <laughs> All right, then. Well, I'd like to thank... Hi, C. Ludemers and John Caracello for adding their wisdom and guidance and honesty to our roundtable today. And if you feel that this roundtable would be a benefit to someone in your life, it's available 24 by 7 on Blog Talk Radio in the archive. So thank you very much, Hi, C. You're welcome. My pleasure. And John Caracello from Utah. Have a great show, Mildred Lynn. Thanks. Well, that's our roundtable for this week. Many thanks to Mildred Lynn McDonald and participants Deb and John Carousella and Heisey Lutmers. We hope you found this roundtable discussion engaging and thought-provoking. If you would like to join the conversation, visit facebook.com slash fireflywillows and add your comment under this week's roundtable post. Stay tuned. And we're back. This is Mildred Lynn McDonald, and I'm your host for Healing Conversations. Thank you for joining us today. According to the World Health Organization, the number of people with dementia worldwide in 2015 is an estimated 47.5 million. The total of new cases of dementia each year worldwide is 7.7 million, implying one new case every four seconds. The number of people with dementia is expected to increase to 75.6 million in 2030 and an astounding 135.5 million in 2050. 
These are big numbers, and most of us, in one way or another, will be impacted by dementia in our very own lifetime. To help us understand what these numbers mean to us and our loved ones, we've invited Catherine Shepherd, Cape Breton Education and Outreach, Alzheimer's Society of Nova Scotia, to the table. I first met Catherine about two months ago when my family was trying to deal with a loved one's diagnosis of dementia. At the time, we were afraid and looking for guidance and support. From the get-go, Catherine stepped into the fire, met us where we were, and offered step-by-step guidance, knowledge, and reassurance at a time when all three were in short supply. I was very touched by this timely gift and decided to dedicate this show to helping Catherine share a message of hope, coping, and perspective for those on a life-altering journey called dementia. Let's welcome Catherine to the show. I have to ask, since I am a Cape Bretoner, what's the weather like today? Weather is overcast and a little bit cool. We've got a cool wind today, but they're staying nice and warm for the rest of the week. Over 20 degrees for us, so that's pretty nice. I'm so happy that you're here, and I have so many questions. To tell you the truth, I never even thought about dementia until I was faced with it in my own life, and then it became very real and very personal. And I'm wondering if you'd be kind enough to share with our listeners What is dementia, and why is it so important for us to understand the impact it can have on a person and their family and our communities? Well, I think first, to understand what dementia is, is we have to realize that dementia is the overall term. It's what we commonly call the umbrella term uh, for a set of symptoms that are caused by disorders affecting the brain. So symptoms may include memory loss, and difficulty thinking, problem solving, language, and these can be severe enough to reduce a person's ability to perform even everyday activities. A person with dementia may also experience changes in mood or even behavior. Why is it important? Well, unfortunately, we know a few things about dementia. We know that it's progressive, which means that the symptoms will gradually get worse as the brain becomes more and more damaged. We also know that, unfortunately, at this point, there is no cure for this disease. So it is a fatal brain disease. There are some treatable conditions that can cause and produce maybe similar symptoms to dementia. For example, vitamin deficiencies or thyroid disease, even sleep disorders. And so we always talk about the importance of uh, arranging a, a full medical assessment as early as possible to make sure we're ruling out anything that isn't dementia because getting a timely diagnosis will only help you and your family as you can access more information and resources to plan for what's ahead. And how is a person diagnosed with dementia? Are there diagnostic tools? Is it subjective? How does that play out? Well, that's a common question that we hear a lot as well. Um, There's no single test that can determine if a person has Alzheimer's disease, we'll say. Uh, The diagnosis is generally made through a series of tests that can help and eliminate the other possible um, causes of things like we talked about earlier. Um, But until there's that conclusive test, doctors um, usually 
use the words, you know, probable Alzheimer's disease or um, probable dementia. Um, but what we want to do is we want to make sure that uh, your doctor's aware that uh, of the symptoms that you're having, and we need to know that their diagnosis is, is usually pretty accurate about, you know, 90% of the time. Making the diagnosis okay. can take time, especially I'm calling from, from Nova Scotia, from Canada, so there are wait lists for certain tests and things, especially if a doctor wants to have a scan done. Um, and a diagnosis can even be made in a family doctor's office at a memory clinic if you're lucky enough to have one close, or if you have a specialist called a geriatrician at a nearby hospital, they can often make the diagnosis for you. Um, and what they'll do is they may ask you to see, like I said, a specialist, a psychologist, sometimes a neurologist. That geriatrician is first and foremost. They, they offer and, and impact so many of the family with their knowledge. Um, sometimes they'll even get a social worker involved. So professionals like that know what the problems are with person's memories and reasoning abilities and language and judgment. And so really they place a lot of emphasis on that as they make the diagnosis. Um, oftentimes you'll hear them say a memory test. And so that can be done a lot of times in a family doctor's office as well. And I noticed there's a clock test. I've come across yes. a clock test and although it looks very simple, Dr. Creighton, who is a wonderful gerontologist in Glace Bay, Nova Scotia, Canada, she took the time to explain to me, although it's a simple test, from the trained perspective, it tells many things. So yes. I have to say, Catherine, I'll never look at a clock the same way again. <laughs> what they ask somebody to do that's struggling with memory and, and language and communication issues is to simply draw a clock and then set the time with the hands of the clock to a specific time. Um, and it really is a telling, a very telling test um, when it's done by a professional to let you know, you know, where you are and, and how things are with the disease. When I first started to do research on dementia and I looked at the numbers and I spoke to the numbers from the World Health Association as I was doing your introduction, as you can imagine, it blew me out of the water. I know that you deal on a community level, and people have their own communities across Canada, the U.S., or wherever. But speaking on a community level, how common is dementia? How often are you running across it? Well, I'll use my own home province, just because that's the information and statistics that I'm, I'm most familiar with, but <laughs> 17,000 Nova Scotians. So we're a relatively small province, but we have 17,000 Nova Scotians dealing with this disease. And right now, our province has more people over the age of 65 than we have under the age of 20. So as you can imagine, with age being the first sort of risk factor with Alzheimer's disease and other dementias, as our province ages, so does the possibility of experiencing uh, this diagnosis. And so it, it becomes more and more common. I think one of the things we always talk about, you and I talked about it a little bit, is the mm -hmm. fact that there is stigma attached to this disease. So I do think the more that people realize that this is a chronic illness, um, and if you've been diagnosed with a chronic illness, it's at that point if you say, you know, help, I need help, I've, I've, received this diagnosis and I don't know what my next steps are 
And it's at that point when you reach out for help, you truly realize that you're not alone. And we need people to to know that. Um, by doing that and reaching out to others, we also hope to decrease the stigma that's related to this disease. Um, really, there shouldn't be a stigma. It is, like we said, a chronic disease, no different than diabetes, no different than lung disease, no different than cancer. It is a chronic disease. Um, and so we need to have people speak out. And when they speak out, they'll realize that there's going to be a hand there to help them up at this moment when they need it the most. I agree with that. And I've experienced the stigma in the way, a very practical way. And people have actually said this to me in regard to a family member. I don't know if I can go to, let's say, a hospital to see them or I, I don't know if it's appropriate for me to talk to them. And it's almost as if the word is center stage and the human being is not as much a human being anymore. And like you said, this is the time when a person really needs support and applaud the person that goes to get the support. So I'm hoping that since we're talking about this today, since we're giving it a platform, and I know there's many other platforms, it may change perception about dementia and move it from a fear place into an acceptable condition that many people have or many people are going to get. So let's get on the wagon and deal with it head on. Absolutely. And it can be a help yeah. to, to meet with other people who have the disease or who are on the journey with the disease, because together you can share feelings and experiences and, and offer emotional and, and social support um, to each other. And that is sort of, you know, you have to be in the club to understand truly what's happening. Uh, and you have to know that there's hope, you know, to hang on. And you deal with each day, each moment as you're faced with it, you know, I try to tell people don't worry about what if or maybe because what if and maybe may never come. So today we deal with today and tomorrow we'll worry about tomorrow. That's, that's a good philosophy for everybody. <laughs> it is. <laughs> in your work, people are diagnosed with dementia. It, it highly impacts the person, of course, and also their family. From your experience, what type of support physical or emotional or mental or spiritual does a person need when they're diagnosed with this? Well, common feelings and reactions that, that you know, people have, and we call this not just a family disease because it affects absolutely everybody in the family, but it's also, especially in our community, as you can attest to, we're a pretty small community and a pretty close community. And so it becomes a community disease, which means that everybody is affected by it. So you're, you're going to have feelings of denial and anger and anxiety and frustration and hurt and sadness and depression. We do hope there is feelings of hope at some point. Uh, what we often tell people, and when we ask people, what we often hear them say is, you know, take one day at a time, join a support group, uh, be able to be with people who can help you laugh and take your stress down, do something that you love to do, something that makes your heart sing, right? Uh, I once had a lady say to me, at the end of every day, no matter how difficult it may be, I find something 
that makes my heart sing. And that's what I go to bed with in my mind and in my heart. Because if not, I can go to bed and rehash the day and think how difficult a day it was. But instead, I find what makes my heart sing, and that's what I, what I go to bed with. So she often says, never give up hope because um, life is worth living. And so that's what I often tell people. I understand that. And I also understand that when you first enter the arena of dementia, and I call it an arena, all kinds of things come up for the family. And what you realize is you become afraid for the person who was diagnosed with dementia, and you become afraid for your family and your community. And you can go close to a panic stage. And when you start looking for answers to questions, it's a journey in itself. And then when you start interacting with the family member that has dementia, it's a whole new reality. It's almost like you are flying to another planet to meet them where they are, and you need to adjust your perception, your interpersonal skills. Like, for example, I've had to eliminate the word remember from my vocabulary because the person I'm interacting with doesn't remember because the short-term memory has been impacted. The hidden gift in that is that I've noticed that helps me too. It helps me live in the moment. Then you start to laugh at yourself a little bit and it makes you question how you might be living your life. So I find that on a personal level very hopeful, hopeful for myself. And it's intriguing and it's a curiosity and you get to explore, well, what would my thought process be like if I didn't have the data points of a short-term memory? And all kinds of things come up around that. Absolutely. Yeah. We often tell people, really think about how you speak because people may not remember who you are and they may not remember what you did, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. And I think that speaks, like you said earlier, for everybody. Because if you think about words just as simple as um, could and would, so could you do this or would you do this? So could kind of insinuates, can you? Do you have the ability to? Whereas would simply is asking a favor. Would you do this for me? instead of saying, could you do this for me? So it, it helps us all become mindful to have a better communication and interaction because we have to realize that every behavior is responsive. And so if we want someone to have a best, the best visit we can with someone who has uh, a dementia, then we have to go in realizing that we have to change. They unfortunately, do not have the ability to do that. What they perceive is what they believe. And I often say to people, you know, their brain, unfortunately, does not have the ability to think logically like ours does. And so it's then up to us to read the situation, to ensure that we're communicating effectively for them, not for us, (laughs) and base each interaction on that. Um, You know, if there is a behavior that happens, take a step back and say, you know, did I say or do something? Because a lot of how we communicate, more than 90% of it is nonverbal. 
And so did I say or do something that caused this behavior? Because a lot of the time, it, it is us. And so we have to recognize that and grow from that. What interesting thing I had to learn when I when I was interacting with this person that has dementia is not to correct them. And that was such a journey for me because, of course, I was thinking, okay, well, I'll correct them and that's going to help them somehow. And as I learned more about dementia, I realized, well, no, actually, that doesn't do anything. It just makes the person who has dementia feel maybe stupid or whatever, wherever they go with that, and it might make me feel frustrated. So I had to turn that completely around, just speaking to what you were sharing a little bit earlier and meet the person where they are currently. And now when they tell me information, whether it's correct or not, I either go along with it or I distract, move gently to another topic or whatever. So we're so trained to correct people and to share information. I think that's a good thing, whereas with dementia, it's totally inappropriate. It is, unless it comes to safety. What I always tell people is we love to be right. You know, we love to be able to say, well, you know, no, that's not the way it is, or uh, it works better if you do it this way. But imagine what it must feel like as an adult to be constantly corrected. You know, it's, it, it becomes a very difficult uh, situation, and so there are generally behaviors that grow from that. And we have to realize that we have caused that behavior. So you have to become the Nancy Drew, that detective, to figure <laughs> out why, right? And so you go back and you say, okay, well, what, what was it that caused this behavior? And oftentimes it's out of love that people try to correct. You know, well, no, don't do that. It goes this way. Don't try that. I'll take care of that don't worry about that, no, you've got that wrong, right, instead of just accepting it. Because often I say to people, does it really matter if they said they made a pie? Does it really matter if they said they've invited a hockey player to supper and they're making spaghetti and meatballs? I mean, ultimately, you know the truth and you know that they're safe. So does it really matter? So what I say to people, unless it comes to safety, Choose peace. You don't have to be right. Choose peace. And if you accept that, because what they're telling you is their reality, and that's truly what they believe, choose peace. It's okay. Because does it really matter who made the pie? Does it really matter that there's no one coming for spaghetti and meatballs? Ultimately, no. And if it keeps peace, isn't that such, doesn't that make for such a uh, better, nicer, calmer visit? So we often say, choose peace. I like that. And when you were speaking, you prompted me, we really move when you're dealing with dementia on a family level, we move from a thinking model to a feeling model. Because I yeah. find that because the executive function of the brain is not processing in a healthy way, so the person doesn't have that stopgap tool there to filter, and the world becomes their world becomes very much about feeling what they're feeling, and then creating stories to support those feelings, and 
I'm, I'm pretty much a feeling person myself. That's how I travel through life, but I also use my handy-dandy brain. But I find the world of feeling very beautiful. So with the person in my family I'm talking about, I find myself, when I'm thinking of my visit or my interaction, asking what can I do or what can I say to create feelings of beauty for this person or safety for this person or connection for this person, and that changes your life. Absolutely. What a beautiful thing you can provide. You know, when you can provide an environment for anybody that allows you to feel safe and loved and cared for and protected, I mean, that's a beautiful thing to offer anybody. And so if you can do that for a person who's struggling with memory and judgment and um, anxiety and panic and depression and loneliness, imagine how, uh, how fabulous that feels for them. And the the other thing we have to remember is that the person with dementia is not doing anything to be personal. So we have to learn to not take things personal. Um, You know, when there is anger, when they do lash out, when perhaps frustration grows, when they they don't remember who you are, um, you know, don't take it personal because unfortunately this is the disease. And this is what the disease is doing to that person that you love. But don't take it personal. Because when you start to take things personally, loving who that person was and who that person is becomes very difficult. That's good advice. Now, when someone, let's say a scenario here, your loved one or yourself, you're just diagnosed with dementia. When you're talking to people, Catherine, what are the common fears that come up? Because it is a place of fear when you're walking that early part of the path. It absolutely is. And and it's pretty common, you know, people, even as the disease progresses, um, there's a lot of fear. But what I always say to people is when when you're dealing with a diagnosis or you're trying to find a diagnosis, the first thing you need to do is you need to seek medical professional advice. I tell people to go armed with a pen and paper. (laughs) Write down as many questions as you can before you get there um, and sit until your questions are answered and write your answers down because unfortunately um, sometimes appointments can be quick, sometimes appointments can be overwhelming and so I always encourage people to go with paper and pen and questions Uh, I also say sometimes it's helpful to have another family member or a friend accompany you to the appointments or tests, someone that you could talk to. Do you know what I mean? Once this process has started, to ensure that you're gathering all of the information. So asking questions like, what tests will be performed, what's involved with those tests, and how long will they take, and how long will it take to get the results back? And and how will we get the results? You know, do we come back and see you? Do we see our family doctor? Um, and, and where do we go from there? Um, and I think the biggest thing is people get a diagnosis and then they don't know what to do. So I, I always talk about, you know, develop that support network. Find people that you're comfortable to share your feelings and emotions with 
and maybe it's a member of your family or a good friend or even a support group because sometimes, you know, people, unfortunately, their families go to, to all areas of the world, so maybe it's a support group. But the important thing is to find an outlet to express your feelings and emotions. Caregivers often become isolated and lonely, and so it's important for them to stay connected um, and seek out help if they need it. And what I've learned is that just as it takes a community, a village, to raise a child, mm-hmm. it, it, it's leading there heavily, very heavily, that it takes the village or community to help with dementia. It's huge. Absolutely. Absolutely. In your experience for talking to people, helping people, guiding people, what are the most common misconceptions about dementia? Because you're, you're talking to different people, they're sharing their thoughts, and you're noticing or filing away in your, your brain, okay, this is a common question. Right. So we do hear a lot of myths, some of them, you know, crazier than others, <laughs> but probably okay. one of the most common I hear is if I'm diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, does it really mean my life is over? So the reality of it is is that if you're diagnosed with the disease, you can live a meaningful and actively filled life for many years. You know, we have people that live in our community diagnosed in early stage disease who live in their own home, they drive their own car, they do their own banking, they buy their own groceries, um, you know, they exercise, they stay socially connected and doing all kinds of things to challenge their brain. Um, so I think it's important to understand that, you know, your life isn't over. Um, does it mean there are some changes that are going to happen? Probably. But an early diagnosis is so important because it opens up that avenue of support and uh, letting people know that, you know, you can live a, a meaning-filled life with the disease. Uh, the other myth that, or the other misconception, I guess, that often I hear is, you know, my mother or father had Alzheimer's disease, so that means I'm going to get it too. Um, and the reality is, is that familial Alzheimer's disease accounts for probably less than 5% of, of all Alzheimer's. It's usually what we call a late onset or sporadic. Um, so it's only about 5% that would have a, a genetic component to it. Um, People are often shocked to hear that Alzheimer's disease isn't a disease of the elderly. Um, We know that it's a progressive degenerative disease of the brain, and it most often occurs in people over 65, but it can affect people in their 30s and their 40s and their 50s. Um, And then you'll always hear, you know, um, aluminum causes Alzheimer's disease or Cocoa butter is how you treat it, right? There's always all kinds of things. We base everything on evidence and research base, and so right now there's no conclusive evidence that that shows that. So we touched a little bit on if a loved one has been diagnosed with dementia, where they can go to get help, and you talked about this. Where can they go to get hope? Working with the Alzheimer's Society, I always call people, uh, encourage people to call their local Alzheimer's Society, whether it's in Canada or the U.S., um, Mm -hmm. to find out what help is available in in your areas. You know, community agencies, um, a lot of times for people, 
hope comes in the form of dealing with day-to-day strategies, trying to find out how to make sure mom or dad is safe while they're at work. Because unfortunately, life goes on. And, you know, children have to work. Mom and dad maybe are retired or living at home, but children have to work. And what they have is fear, fear of leaving mom or dad home alone, fear that maybe mom or dad may not be safe while they're at work, and guilt, right? Guilt for having to leave um, someone they love so dearly, and they're worried that something is happening to them while they're away at work. So I always tell people, let's first start with community agencies that can offer practical supports and services, like help with household or caregiving tasks so that you don't have to worry while you're away through the day. Um, I also think it's important to have a network of family and friends who are willing to lend support. What I always say to people is imagine what it feels like when someone asks you if you can do something. Most times we say, absolutely, I'd love to help. And when you're able to do that for somebody else, it feels good, right? You feel good for being able to help somebody else. That's no different. What you might have to do um, when you're dealing with a diagnosis of dementia is determine what help you do need. Um, Think about the people that you love and the strengths and weaknesses that they have, and even your strengths and weaknesses, what you would need and what would help you in that caregiving role and what your person with dementia needs so family and friends may want to help but often don't quite know what to do so figure out who might be able to help and then ask them Um, most times people will say i'd love to help but how what do i do and it could be as simple as coming for a cup of tea it could be as simple as cutting the grass or icing you know making sure the walkway is free of ice in the winter time, it could be as simple as coming and sitting and watching TV while the caregiver is able to get out and get groceries or pay bills or just have some free time for themselves. So oftentimes I say to people, let's deal with the day-to-day issues that will offer you some hope because it offers you peace of mind. And so I think that's a big, a big thing that we often talk about. You know, we talk about Alzheimer's Society, we talk about community programs and home supports, we talk about day programs in your local community and private agencies and dementia specialists um, like Tipa Snow, who is a world-renowned dementia expert. Um, She has videos online that sometimes for people, they just need to gather a little bit more information about this disease to understand a little bit more. And so, you know, turning to reliable Uh, Computer resources can be a fantastic thing. No matter how the disease affects the individual, it's important to treat that person with dignity and respect. And although certain abilities will be lost, and emotions and feelings will always remain, and as the need for companionship and belonging, right, that always remains. So providing activities and interactions that bring a sense of joy and celebration by focusing on the ability that remains and not what is gone, it'll go a long way in adding to the quality of life that that person has, maintaining that sense of self, and so providing a relationship 
that provides hope. I really like that. When you were speaking, once again, you triggered something in me, and I was thinking about the most challenging aspect of the diagnosis of dementia. Well, I'll go back a little bit. One thing that I found very useful was that when I spoke with health professionals, they would guide me and say, this is a process. This is a process. It takes time. It's a process. So I was able to put that in place. It's a process. And the second thing is receiving all this new information from planet dementia, because it's almost like a new planet that you're on, as you said, it can be so overwhelming. So the other guidance of taking it step by step is also very useful, and you gave some wonderful steps there. What I was left with is the change in relationship between myself and the person with dementia, because most people have, let's say, an honest, truthful relationship with their loved one, and as you're journeying with dementia, you realize that you start to have to fabricate stories or situations or commentary for the ultimate goal of peace. And that truly is a struggle. And you wonder, am I doing the right thing? Has anybody expressed that to you? People say that a lot, right? One of the things they always say is, I promised my mom or dad that, or husband or wife, um, that I would always be honest and truthful. And what I try to let people know is that it's not as if you're doing something to them. You're doing something for them. Um, And we have to remember that sometimes the stretching of the truth, right, um, can be difficult for people. But we also have to remember that we're trying to enhance something for this person. Um, We're not trying to be negative. We're trying to make sure it's a safe environment. And that's that can be really that can be really difficult for people. It's it's not uncommon that you hear that people say, "Oh, I, I feel really bad." And I I had one gentleman who said to me, "You know, I said for better or for worse, for a reason, and I I'm going to follow through with that." Um, but what we also have to understand is caregivers are probably four times more likely to suffer a, a chronic illness um, when they're not taking care of themselves. And we we often say to people, or I often say to people, we have to make sure that we're taking care of both of you because if you're the caregiver, what happens to the person that you love with this disease if something happens to you? So we're not doing anything to them. We're doing for them. And that's what we've had, we have to, we have to really remember that. Yeah, and it is, it is something to strive for. When I'm there, Catherine, I'll let you know. <laughs> it's still a work in progress for me. It's not easy. <laughs> it's, not, it's not easy, but there, all I all I figure is I haven't found the correct approach yet, and I'm throwing what I have against that. And I know it'll work out, and I know what you're saying is absolutely correct. And it's it's just a little bit of a journey. And I'm sure there's many little journeys I'm going to be going on. So what I'd love to do is take a little break. I have a beautiful song here from Mary Jane Lamont and Wendy McIsaac from Cape Breton Island. It's called the Blue Mountain Lullaby. And for those who enjoy Gaelic, there's a little bit of Gaelic in there and a little bit of 
fiddle music and a little bit of beautiful singing. And when we come back, maybe we can touch on some some more practical resources. You mentioned Teeth the Snow, and I want to go a little deeper into that, and I'm sure there's other wonderful resources. So how does that sound? Sounds fantastic. And we will be back in a few minutes. Enjoy. You're listening to Healing Conversations with host Mildred Lynn McDonald on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Enjoy the show. And we're back. Are you there, Catherine? I'm here. 
I want to share with people who are just tuning in now, I'm speaking with Catherine Shepard of the Cape Breton Education and Outreach of the Alzheimer's Society of Nova Scotia. And Catherine, as we listened to that beautiful song, I remembered the importance of music for people who have dementia and wondering if you'd be kind enough to share a little bit about that. Absolutely. So many times... Um, what is lost in our brain or the person with dementia, what is lost in their brain is information that is the newest information. That is that which has been most recently learned. For a lot of people, music from when they were younger or earlier in life, that is retained. Um, And so it becomes a sign of comfort for a lot of people. People that have lost the ability maybe to communicate verbally will be able to sing. People that have lost the ability to walk can sometimes dance. Uh, And it's really quite amazing when you see the power that music has. When When people ask about the power of music, what I often say is when something was wrong and you were young and the person that you went to was usually mom, right, if you were hurt, if you had scraped mm-hmm. your knee, or if you were trying to sleep at night and had a bad dream, usually it was mom that you went to, and hopefully they wrapped their arms around you and leaned down to kiss your forehead and sang a song. So for many people, music is a sign of comfort. Music is uh, something that is home. Music is something that brings back and pulls back positive um, memories, positive experiences. And so for many people, the right type of music can be life-altering. Um, I always laugh because I always say the right type of music because it's important to know that, you know, if you had someone that never loved country, <laughs> they may not <laughs> love country now. Um, but if you can get into the type of music that they loved from their family, then a lot of times music is is soothing and wonderful. And like I said, it they may not speak, but they can sing. They may not walk, but they can dance. For people that get agitated, uh, maybe getting their hair done or eating a meal, if they're able to put, um, you know, earphones on and play music that they like, that gives them comfort and soothing and calm, then it makes the activity doable, workable. So it's really a... Um, for those that loved music, it's really a beautiful thing to see. I'm thinking music is the great healer mm. for these various situations. And I want to skip back to someone that you mentioned earlier. You mentioned Teepa Snow. And for our listeners, it's T-E-E-P-A, and last name is Snow, S-N-O-W. From a personal perspective, I went to her website I liked her message. I was so impressed, and I looked at her events page, and she seemed to be out and about everywhere doing her work. And then I went on to YouTube, and I found about 13 YouTube videos. They were either 10 minutes long, 11 minutes, 12 minutes. What really impacted me, what really helped me, is that she was able to describe the world of the person with dementia how it interfaced with your world, including questions or frustrations that may come up for you, 
and then offer for your consideration a way of dealing with the person, the situation, the interaction that you're presented with in a healthy and delightful way. So what I did is, you know, of course, if you're looking at 10 to 13 videos, they're about 10 minutes each, that's a lot of time and they're very profound. So I made an agreement with myself that I would look at one or two every day. I would wait and let the information be absorbed, and then I would try to express or I would practice what she shared in her videos. Absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it must be a vocation for Tipa Snow because this is magical stuff. And I know that you are familiar with her work, and you may have some something to share also, Catherine. Well, we've been blessed here in Cape Breton to have Tipa come um, to do some work with some of our healthcare staff and also with some of our family and friends. Um, Tipa has come um, not only through the district, the health, district health authority here to do some work with frontline healthcare staff, but she's given very freely of her time and talent to do a family and friend event with us. We've had three family and friend events, which are uh, events for family and friends uh, with people on the journey with dementia. There's no registration and no fee for any of those family and friends event, and TIPA has given very freely of her talent um, to allow people to listen and learn and communicate and ask questions, um, and you just get an overwhelmingly positive response from it. We've also been very blessed last January and again this January coming in 2016 to have TIPA come and speak at our uh, Alzheimer's Society Research Awareness Breakfast in Cape Breton. Um, so we, we have been blessed. Um, I, I've been able to um, speak with TIPA and get to know TIPA, and she's a, a certified occupational therapist by trade. This is her calling. I often say that to people. Um, she has the perfect medical understanding to explain how the brain with this disease works and how it affects the person. I was also very lucky to ask her at one point, how did she get started in this line of work? And the the quote that she gave me was, when I was eight years old, my grandfather came to live with us after my grandmother had died. He moved in because the people in the apartment said he was trying to break into other apartments at night. He was a retired maintenance man there, and now he was trying to fix things that he fixed 30 years ago. The apartment manager then had come and said that he couldn't stay there anymore. My mom was not a good caregiver, so I realized that I was. So I stepped into the role, even at eight. I got it, and I said to my granddad that it's hard that we don't have grandma anymore. And I miss her a lot, and I bet you miss her too. But I need your help now, and can you help me? And so he helped her because he liked her, and I helped him because I loved him. And so I became his primary caregiver. And so when you really look at what Tipa speaks and how she speaks and how she acts and interacts and reacts, you can tell that this is her calling. And it's really interesting to me how she became part of that caregiving role even at ACE. Any other resources impress you? That you've come across? Well, there, there are so many. Again, I go back to the Alzheimer's Society um, because there are so many 
opportunities there for, for family members, for people with the disease, um, and for caregivers to take advantage of. You know, there's lots of resources for, there's groups for people with dementia and their caregivers, uh, what we call shaping the journey. There's support groups for caregivers. We have family caregiver education series, which are a six-week course, two hours per week, allowing people to come, understand more about the disease, and, and leave with resources armed with information so that they can make the best decision. As a education and outreach coordinator, I'm in my community, which is Cape Breton Island, doing presentations for the public, presentations for healthcare staff, probably at least three times a week, if not more. And when you think about our small community being that willing to reach out and and gather education and information, it certainly speaks accolades of them. The other thing that I always tell people is the Alzheimer's Society has a 1-800 number. In Nova Scotia, that number connects you with what we call the info line, and you'll reach uh, someone who will either speak to you at that point or call you back at a time that's better for you, letting you know that there's someone in your corner. Um, For a lot of people, that's all they need. They need to hear that there's someone in their corner so that if and when the situation becomes difficult, they know where to reach. So I think that's really one of the most important things that people can realize is that they're not alone and that there is someone there and they're sitting in their corner and they've got their back. I have to say to our listeners I want to share, when I called Catherine, Oh, my heavens, it was such a relief to hear your voice, Catherine, and even more importantly, you were 100% present with me, and that is a real gift to have when you're dealing with people and working with people and helping people and guiding people. When I talked to you, I felt that I didn't even call and make an appointment. I just picked up the phone. You were on the other end. I felt you were 100% present. And I felt we were the only two people in the world. And you were there for me. And I can only say if people at the Alzheimer's Association in different provinces or different states are as dedicated and present, what beautiful work. What a wonderful resource to have available for people. Yeah, well, that's wonderful to hear. You know, I think I've worked in healthcare for for quite a long time. Um, but I've also been on the other end of healthcare. You know, it's really easy when we're only the provider and not in need of. Um, but if you've lived both sides of the fence, <laughs> mm-hmm. then you start mm-hmm. to realize the importance of being present, the importance of uh, a kind word, the importance of a caring hand, uh, and the difference that they can make. In just a moment, it's something that we can all learn, that it only takes a moment, a moment to say something or do something that creates a hurt feeling when, if we all just had a little bit of patience, the end result is overwhelmingly positive for everybody. And isn't that what you want people to remember you by? For me, it is. 
speaks to what you had mentioned earlier, how it makes you feel. People forget your name, they forget what you do, but they will never forget how you make them feel. Absolutely. Maya Angelou, what do you find fulfilling about the work that you do on a personal level? Well, I think on a personal level, when you're able to have someone have that, you know, aha moment. People often say, you know, they're doing this to get under my skin or they're doing this because they know it bugs me or they're doing this because, um, you know, of one reason or another. And when you're truly able to have them have their aha understanding moment that this disease is what's causing that, that they're not trying to do anything to be spiteful or hurtful, that this is the the symptom of the disease, and you see people truly understand, I think that that, for me, is a good day. When you're able to offer people, in a moment of crisis, that hand to help up, that is a good day for me. Um, because you never know when the table will be turned and you'll need the hand up. So I think if you're able to do that for people, it's a blessing. Nicely put. And who are your role models? Who's inspired you? Mm. I think for me, I grew up in a home filled with love and laughter and patience and kindness and understanding. And so for me, there was no no better role model than my parents. You know, my mom and dad, who I'm still blessed to have with me, although I'm sure we get under each other's skin every now and then, <laughs> especially as I grew older, um, there's, there's no better role model for me. You know, my husband and I often say, if we can have a marriage half as good as their marriage, then we'll be blessed. And so I, and I often say, if people will say just half of the wonderful things that they say about my parents, then I'll have done a good job in life as well. And the other question I'm dying to ask you is, who do you need to be to do this work? And what I mean by that is, for example, in order to do the work I do, the energy work, I I meditate or do a visualization at dawn and dusk, and that anchors me through the day, so I'm able to show up and be who I need to be to honor the calling that I have. So who do you need to be to do this work? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I think that you need to be clear and present. And Mm -hmm. just as you meditate, I love the gym. And I'll go to the gym and I'll put my earbuds in and I'll get on a treadmill and I walk and I clear my head. Um, But I also think you need to be not just clear and present, but you need to be honest. You need to be a person that, you know, holds honesty high, um, but you need to be a person not willing to, you know, I often say my my emotions are on my sleeve, and I often say to people, I'm a sook, and I make no bones about it. It's who I am, and it's, it's, you know, one of the cards I bring to the table. Uh, The other thing I say to people is this, I'll fight for you. If you need somebody to fight, I'll fight. If you need somebody to call, call me. If you need somebody to talk to, 
talk to me. I'm okay with that. And so I think you have to be a person willing to say those things, but then be the person that's willing to follow through with them as well. And when I was speaking to you, I just remembered another gift that you gave me. You gave me courage. I did have a feeling that you were honest, you would stand behind your word, and that you would fight for what you were sharing with me. And then you passed that courage along to me. So thank you once again. I'm glad I remembered that. One other question I have is through dealing with dementia, dealing with people, with families, with the community. This is big stuff. And I'm sure that you've learned about life through helping people in their families. What have you learned? I've learned that love is everlasting. Mm. (laughs) You know, I, I think in moments of anxiety and depression and sadness and loneliness, love is everlasting. Uh, And I think that if you're able to let people know that you appreciate who they are, that personhood or who that person was or is is always there, um, I think that that's important. I, I think that sometimes in a world where things are so busy, where people are so busy, where technology is incredible and scary all at the same time, I think it's really important to let people know that you love them because you never know when that experience will be taken and you never know when it will be forgotten or remembered. So that's one of my beliefs. So what we're going to do, we're going to just have a little break, maybe for about a minute or so. And when you come back, just to close up, I want to see if there's anything that you'd like to add or leave our listeners with a little bit of inspiration. How does that sound? Sounds great. You're listening to Healing Conversations with host Mildred Lynn McDonald on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Enjoy the show. And we're back again. This is Mildred McDonald. Thank you for listening today. And we are talking to Catherine Shepard, Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, Education and Outreach, 
Alzheimer's Society. And Catherine, you are there, I hope. I'm here. Is there anything that you'd like to share with our listeners in closing? Here's what I'll leave you with. I'll leave you with what we call the philosophy of care. And that is to remember to look for the person behind the disease. They are still there as they once were. A person's abilities will change over time as the disease progresses. But it is important to look for the remaining strengths and the abilities of the person and to build on those instead of concentrating on what we can no longer do. Reinforce remaining strengths. Encourage independence for as long as possible. So when you notice that there's a behavioral difference, look for who that person was, who that person is, and remember they're still there. Catherine, what I would love to do is invite you to come back on the show with someone who's in the role of a caregiver. And I don't know when that would be. I'm going to leave it up to you to let me know when the time is right. But I'd really like to have that perspective, to have you here talking and also have the caregiver talking. Does that sound good to you? That sounds wonderful. And if I don't hear from you in three to six months, I'm coming after you. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds good, too. Could you share the website or the online information for the Alzheimer's Society of Nova Scotia? Because I'm sure some of our listeners are going to want to head there now. Sure. What I can do is I'll give the Alzheimer's Society of Canada, and that will mm-hmm. connect you to whichever province you're in, or you can connect easily to whatever province you're in. And it's mm-hmm. simply www.alzheimer.ca. So Catherine Shepherd. Thank you, thank you, thank you for doing this work. Thank you for taking time out of your weekend to be here to share your message of hope and perspective and wisdom with our listeners. I'm really looking forward to our time together again. I hope to see you when I return to Cape Breton Island. And have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the experience and the opportunity. This podcast is available 24 by 7 on Blog Talk Radio, and it's also available on my Facebook page. So with that, I'll wish all our listeners a wonderful day. Thank you very much. Go out there and have a whole bunch of healing conversations with people in your family and the community. Bye for now. Join Mildred Lynn McDonald for a fascinating tour of the mind-body-spirit connection. Enjoy nourishing conversations, thought-provoking guests, personal growth tools, compassionate guidance, practical tips, plus a generous sprinkling of East Coast humor and warmth. You'll also love our popular roundtable discussions featuring Deb Carousella, Heisey Lutmers, John Carousella, and Mildred Lynn. Airs the first Sunday of the month at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. For more information, please go to Healing Conversations with MildredLynn.com. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L I V E. We hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you for joining us.